In this week's episode of No Agenda Weekly, I talk about my Christmas in Cairo and also the 1914 Christmas truce. So it is December 22nd, 2020. I'm Brent Parker, your host. Stick around. Well, hey, everybody. It is December 22nd, 2020. There are three days until Christmas. Three days until Christmas. Some of you are probably thinking that's a great thing. Some of you really like this time of year and and Christmas is that final day that you really get to enjoy it before life kind of starts going back the other direction. You actually start paying attention to what's actually going on in your life instead of the holiday season. I really like the the lead up to Christmas. I enjoy that time. I really enjoy Christmas Day. Um, I've been really lucky throughout my life as far as um being around for Christmas and home for Christmas. And even when I was in the military, it always kind of played it out that I was uh, very few Christmases that I had a family I was gone for. Um, So I've lucked out, I feel like, with, with my profession. And even when I was in the military and having a family and being deployed for years at a time, um, I, I always kind of was able to make it home for Christmas and I always kind of shot for that and I was always to make it happen. Now, obviously it didn't happen every time, but for the most part, um, I was able to pull it off. And so I, I really enjoy, uh, this time of year and just being with my family in this time of year, everybody that thinks about the Christmas time and the holiday season, they start reflecting on everything that they've done in the holiday seasons of their past, right? You get really nostalgic about it. You start remembering Christmases you've had in the past, fun times, bad times, things kind of, you tend to always remember what you were doing in that time of year in your past. And it's, it's, I don't know if your mind just makes a connection with holiday seasons and, and, um, your past, but it, it tends to, I I think with some people. Um, so as you are thinking about this holiday season and, you know, remembering joyful experiences, or even in some cases, not so joyful experiences in some cases of your holiday season, I wanted to talk to you about a specific memory that I have during and on Christmas. And I think I had a little a little preview of it. Um, The last podcast, I kind of had a little spoiler alert on what I was going to talk about this time. And it was I was. Um, stationed in Egypt for a while when I was uh, in the military and I was, I spent um, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in Cairo. 
on uh, kind of on a little leave. We did we didn't go very far. Um, so where I was at in Egypt is um, a community called Sharm el Sheikh, which is in the Sinai Peninsula. And if you kind of think in your head, if you see Africa and then you see everything to the to the east of it, there there's just like this little triangle piece of land that essentially connects Africa to Asia. And that is called the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and what I was doing there is back in the 80s, the Israeli and the Egyptians had this horrible war. Um, and there was something called the Camp David Accords, which was a peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. And the the mission for us was essentially to keep them from fighting each other. There's people there now um, stationed there doing the same thing as I speak. And they've been there since the 80s. The the program or the, the mission is it's the multinational force and observers. So what that means is there's countries from all around the world that are stationed on this little this triangle piece of land. And our sole job was to make sure that the Egyptians did not have military equipment on this piece of land. And the Israelis did not have military equipment on this piece of land. Obviously, it's part of Egypt, but at the same time, as a big demilitarized zone. And when I say it's a, a piece of land, I mean, you're looking, I, I really can't put it in scale, but you're looking at a piece of land like the size of Texas. I mean, it's it's big um, where this little, for whatever reason, this peninsula separates Africa from Asia. Anyways, so I was stationed in Sharm el Sheikh, and by the way, that is a, a gorgeous, absolute gorgeous place to go. I would love to go back there someday. I don't necessarily know if it's that safe anymore. Really, I don't think was that safe when I was there either. But um, that is so. Sharm el Sheikh is where um, people. That's like the European version of of Cancun. Let's just, for lack of a better word, um, Sharm el Sheikh is right on the Red Sea. It's a it's a big beachy tourist destination. That's just where South Camp was, where I was stationed out at, and we were able to go into Sharm el Sheikh quite a bit. And I got my scuba diving license there in Sharm el Sheikh. I was able to scuba dive in the Red Sea. Um, scuba dove uh, a World War II British um, container ship full of locomotives that that was sunk in the Red Sea. Um, just super, super cool stuff. And, and essentially, I would be there for a week on the South Camp in Sharm el Sheikh, and then um, a week I would spend out in this little uh, OP, which is an observation post, and it was literally in the middle of the desert, surrounded by barbed wire fence, a couple little huts, houses. You slept in one. You had your radio equipment in the other. There was a tower in the middle, and we just hung out in the middle of nowhere with uh, 
quite a big Bedouin population, which Bedouins is kind of like an Egyptian nomad. Um, they would always herd their goats past us, and it was it was a very cool experience. I, I enjoyed it a lot. I would love to go back there someday, but like I said, there's there's just uh, a lot of concerns about Americans being in that region of the world, obviously, in the past 10 years. Um, so to, uh, to kind of give you an idea of uh, when this was, I think this was in 2003, 2002, 2003, the, I can't remember, I think it was 2003. It was the, the Iraqi invasion was just starting, was, was starting to ramp up when, when I was there. Um, real quick to, uh, before I get into, uh, my Christmas Eve and Christmas day in Cairo, I, uh, the, it's very historical about, uh, Christian religion. I mean, Mount Sinai, I was able to hike Mount Sinai. There was, I, I, I did know some uh, friends of mine that camped on Mount Sinai overnight, and they said it was absolutely awesome. Uh, I, I was not able to do that. Um, and a lot of that was, uh, there were certain trips we would be able to go, and they would only accept a handful of people. But um, I was able to hike Mount Sinai and also snorkel where Moses supposedly separated the Red Sea. And it's a little town called Nueva, and it's uh, th- uh, there's another outpost that was there that I had friends um, that were stationed in Nueva on their outpost, and we would travel to Nueva, and it's it's right on the right on the Red Sea was their outpost and their beach area, and there was a section of this that all the locals around would say this is where Moses. Um, separated the Red Sea. And you, if you kind of look at it, if you if you stood on the, the beach, you could say, yeah, I, I think I think he could have done this uh, <laughs> without, you know, it. if you looked across um, across to uh, um, the other side of the Red Sea, which it really it really wasn't very far at all. I mean, people think the Red Sea is, you know, miles and miles wide, which it, it really is. Uh, that separates uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. But as you go up to the Red Sea and you hit the Sinai Peninsula, it kind of separates. So I think it's like the Gulf of Suez, uh, you know, is on one side of the Sinai Peninsula that goes up through the Suez Canal. And um, which I wasn't able to see. Uh, by the way, because I was an American, which was kind of odd. I'll get to that story later. And the other side was the Sea of Aqaba or the Gulf Aqaba. One of, something of the Aqaba, right? Sea or Gulf Aqaba. I think it was the Gulf Aqaba. And that is supposedly where Moses separated the Red Sea. It's, it's relatively shallow. There's, it's not very deep. They, they kind of talk about that, you know, um, that it's it's possible that water levels, you know, were down at that time, that they were able to to cross it, um, which I would probably say it's a it's a good mile across 
the Sea of Aqaba, but it's really shallow. And and um, it's you know, kind of in that that story of when Moses parted the Red Sea. There's there are some uh, indicators that something happened there. And so, for example, like you would snorkel out from Nueva and where where all the locals say this is it. This is where Moses parted the Red Sea. You would snorkel out into the the Gulf of Aqaba. Here, let me check this out. Is it the Gulf? Yeah, it's the Gulf of Aqaba from Nueva. And as you would as you would look down, you would you know it's maybe five six feet. It's like I said, it's really not that deep, but as you'd go out, you'd see be, these big coral, um, uh, coral shapes that look like wagon wheels. Uh, it just things that were odd that you wouldn't necessarily think should be there, right? And so that that story when Moses, when the the Red Sea came together, and all those people were in the middle of it. There are indications that there were wagons in the Red Sea at that spot, obviously. When coral attaches onto wood, for example, every all the wood decomposes, but the coral kind of keeps that shape, and so I thought that was kind of cool. But that was my two cents on uh, Moses parting the Red Sea and where it was at. But all the locals, that's in Nueva, they said this is where Moses parted the Red Sea, and so I thought that was kind of cool. And it was it was was not too far from Mount Sinai. Um, I can't exactly remember how far it was, but you know, you're you're looking at a plot of land like the size of Texas, so um, it's it's always you know it's not not too far at all. So, but anyways, I'm gonna start getting to my Christmas Eve. That's my little um, Sinai Peninsula stories that I got there. Um, Christmas, it was I think it was around the beginning of December and a couple of buddies of mine, we got slotted to take leave over Christmas. And we were, um, I can't remember. I think one, one of the guys had family, but his family was going somewhere and it, it just didn't work out for him to fly all the way back to the States. Or I don't even think we could fly all the way back to the States. We had to like, choose an area that we wanted to go. Regardless, we decided that we were going to go to Cairo. And at this time, I did not have a family. So disclaimer, I, I was not, I didn't know Bridget had, um, who's my wife, had no kids, nothing. So we were like, hey, let's go up to Cairo. So we we uh, got some bus tickets in Sharm El Sheikh. And this is, I think, the day before Christmas Eve. And we started on our journey um, up to Cairo because I think we had like three days that we could be gone. Um, I think is what our our time slot that we said, well, we just want to be gone for three days over Christmas. So we started on our journey across the Sinai Peninsula in this, lack of a better words, this piece of shit bus. Like it was like a bus slash minivan thing. It was not cool. Um, and it's a, it's kind of a long drive because it's kind of like you're driving, a, like I said, driving across Texas and talk about absolutely nothing to see. Nothing, nothing there, just straight desert as far as the eye can see. 
Um, and the, the more you got into the Sinai Peninsula, the, the worse it got. You, once we kind of got to where the Suez Canal came through, by the way, when I said that, you know, we were Americans, we couldn't see it. We had to take a special route that um, took us through this tunnel because we weren't allowed to see the Suez Canal. And there was these checkpoints along the way that if you came to the checkpoint, they would identify who you were and whether or not you were able to, to see the Suez Canal or not. We were not able to. Um, so we had to go down this other road that took us in this tunnel that went under the Suez Canal. And we were never able to, to physically see it, which was kind of a bummer because that's that's kind of one thing we wanted to do is we wanted to take pictures of the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal pretty much separates uh, the Sinai Peninsula to the rest of Egypt. And I remember going down in this tunnel and it was complete nothing around us. It was just desert and kind of little Bedouin villages and just crap. And we went into the Suez Canal Tunnel, which is this beautiful, big freeway style tunnel. And we came up to the other side and it was the most lush, green, just gorgeous place you'd ever see. Palm trees and trees and vegetation. And it's like you kind of went into a new world. And so we we entered into Cairo. And if if you have no idea about Cairo, it is, I think it's the second largest city in the world. And it does not have a traffic signal anywhere within the city. So it's absolutely just mind boggling uh, on how chaotic it is. But it's absolutely gorgeous. Good time. Um, and the the history of it, it's super old. And we've noticed that all the buildings kind of looked like they were not completely uh, built. The tops of them were like rebar that were sticking out of the top and kind of half finished. So they like built like three or four levels and then we're going to build the fifth. But like every building had this. And that was by design because families, every time a new generation of family comes in, they just build their own level on top. So uh, that's that's how their families grew. You know, you had kids. Well, one, you know, your oldest daughter or son or whatever would build their living space above yours and so forth and so on. And these buildings just got taller and taller and taller. Um, so that I thought that was kind of interesting, the, the kind of the old architecture of it and how how they lived. Uh, we to, to get around, we, we were able to uh, to get a taxi driver. So at this time, I think it was six pounds for every dollar. So it's a uh, six Egyptian pounds to every U.S. dollar at that time. I don't know what it is now. I think it's something like 16 pounds to U.S. dollar. I think um, the Muslim Brotherhood, when they took over the uh, the Egyptian government, it kind of screwed them. But they, we were able to secure a taxi driver for $5 for all day on Christmas Eve. Um, so we, we get there, uh, we take a taxi, this is the day before Christmas Eve, we take a taxi to a mall and it's your normal hustle and bustle city. It's very, uh, very modern. There's, there's a modern amenities you would think about. We had a really nice hotel. 
right at the base of the pyramids. Now, I'm going to tell you about the pyramids. Everybody has this fantasy thought of the pyramids out in the middle of the desert. You know, if you stand and you look at the pyramids at a certain angle, yeah, you can kind of portray that. But if you kind of swing your focus maybe 10 degrees to one side, you are going to have to Photoshop out McDonald's and KFC and all that other stuff. <laughs> Probably a Starbucks now just to make it look pretty remote. It's on the edge of Cairo, but it is right next to the city. And there um, is so much amenity around these pyramids. They're gorgeous. They're humongous. But they're uh, it's, it's very, I always laugh when I see pictures of the pyramids because it looks like it's in this desolate area and it's really not. And the Sphinx is pretty amazing in its own self too. Um, which is literally like right next to McDonald's a Sphinx is like 50 feet away, which is funny. Um, so we, our hotel was right next to the pyramids and the, the, the big pyramid of Giza every night, they have a laser light show that they play off the top of this thing. You literally feel like you're in Las Vegas. They're like jamming music and there's lasers flashing around off the top of this and, uh, it's pretty spectacular, but it's like I said, it's it's kind of weird because you're thinking about uh, one of the you know wonders of the world, the ancient structure, and they have a you know, laser light show off the top of it. So we stay in this hotel, um, and it's it's uh, a Muslim country, so you know there's a lot of do's and don'ts, and you know it's hard to find alcohol in Muslim countries because they don't drink. They, they did have this casino uh, that was at our hotel that did serve alcohol as long as you were, uh, as long as you were actively gambling. And that'll play, play a part a little bit, a little bit later. So we wake up on Christmas Eve and we're like, what are we going to do? And uh, there was, we wanted to go golfing. So there's this gorgeous golf course right at the base of the pyramids and they uh we show up and we all get these caddies and they're they're just egyptian guys that really have no idea how to play golf none and i mean we don't either we just we're playing golf or i don't know how to play golf the other two guys that are with are pretty good at playing golf and so we we go on our adventure and i remember, I remember like we'd go uh like my ball would end in a sand trap and my caddy would come and hand me a putter. And he's like, yeah, just put it out. And I'm like, it's a, a putter. I'm in a sand trap. And if you don't know golf, you do not use putters and sand traps, right? And so they would always hand you the putter. I don't know why. You could be like halfway to the pin and you'd be like, hey, grab me a club. And they'd hand you a putter and you'd have to put it in. I mean, like I said, they these, the, the, these guys had no idea how to play golf. And that took, that took a lot of the day uh, to play golf. And I actually have a super great picture that I may probably try to find and throw it on our Facebook page. Uh, it's a picture of me and my two buddies. And I remember they got so pissed off at me because I looked at the camera and I apparently wasn't supposed to look at the camera. <laughs> and they're, they're, we're all lined up. We all have our golf clubs and they're all looking out, out into the distance. And there's this gorgeous picture of the pyramids behind us. And I'm looking right at the camera like a dope. And it was 
I remember they were so pissed off. They're like, you're not supposed to look at the camera. And I'm like, I didn't know what the hell. Apparently we were making up this old like golf photo of like these guys, like looking off in the distance, looking so, you know, like, uh, uh, stoic or something. I don't really know what we were doing, but I looked at the camera like an idiot. I still had the picture. I think it's super awesome. Uh, so that's, that was kind of funny. And then, so after that, we were like, all right, so we are the only really way we could get alcohol. And of course we're all young uh, guys at the time was the gamble. So we, we ended up going to the casino in our hotels. Like I said, as long as you are, uh, as long as you are actively gambling, like drinks were free. So that could, that kind of showed you something that it was, it was horrible, horrible alcohol. And so we were, we went to the casino for a while and I think we were kind of getting, uh, getting a little tipsied up and we ended up, uh, and I can't remember how we came to this information that the U S embassy had a Christmas Eve dinner for Americans and there's a big American college in Cairo. And so we, uh, we walked out front, of course, our taxi cab guy who we paid $5 to be with us all day was, that was like the most he made. I mean, he's like making crazy money, us giving him $5 or something like that. And he was like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll, I'll drive you around for everywhere. And we actually ended up giving him a $20 bill. And like the guy, uh, I mean, when you give somebody a $20 bill and they get emotional, you know, they're working for a living. Um, and so we uh, we ended up he ended up giving us a ride to this U.S. embassy. And as we pull up, we're walking up and these two guys, these two American guys are coming out. And I don't know how they ended up getting us talked into not going into the U.S. embassy, but going with them instead uh, to some nightclubs in Cairo. And this is where it kind of gets a little stupid and crazy. Um, so we, they had this Jeep. We still had this ta- or this taxi that we paid this guy $20. Uh, he s- decided that at some point um, he said, you know, I'm just going to stick with you however long you want me. And I, he was going to be kind of like our tour guide sidekick. And which is, which is super awesome to have a personal Egyptian taxi cab driver with you when you have been drinking in, in a huge city and acting kind of crazy. So these guys that came out of the American embassy jumped in their Jeep. They had this Jeep. And I remember we were just flying through Cairo and the Cairo has these big roundabouts and they're like five or six lanes. And we ended up stopping in this part of the city. And our taxi driver was nervous. He's like, we should not be here. Why are we here? And I said, I don't know. We're just following these guys that obviously live here. They know where they're at. Well, we were on a quest to get alcohol and the taxi driver did not really know we were on that quest. Uh, so we, we stopped and these two guys knew where to get alcohol. I mean, we're essentially buying black market gin in Cairo which I'm pretty sure was straight ethanol. It was the most disgusting stuff ever. But 
it is what it is. It did the trick, right? And we walked down through these buildings and our, our taxi cab driver came with us. Uh, it was the whole horde of people. Um, so like me to my buddies, a taxi cab driver, and these two American guys that went to this American university who by this time are kind of acting strange. <laughs> and so, but it, it, we, we were kind of along for the ride at this moment. And we ended up in this alley. And all I can remember looking up and down this alley and there was like little naked kids running around. There was a camel like running down. It was almost kind of like uh, uh, the picture of that riderless horse, you know, the, the horse kind of trotting through with a saddle and no rider. But in a camel version, super sketchy place. And these guys that we were with like knocked on the door and they were essentially selling gin and mason jars that they were making out of the back of this building. And, uh, so, and I, we got a box, it was probably 12 Mason jars, a box of this for, it was like under 10 American dollars. It was just absurd. And we, we get, so we're carrying this back and it's illegal. We know it's illegal. Uh, I think, I think the words diplomatic immunity, I think was being told in between us uh, me and my buddies, because we were uh, essentially American soldiers in a foreign country. So we were hoping that whole diplomatic uh, uh, immunity thing actually worked. The other guys, however, the two American students who we later found out were popping pills of some sort because they got really goofy. And luckily, we 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 were with them. We were along for the ride, but we were able to separate with them pretty, pretty quickly. And so we end up making it back to the Jeep and the taxi cab. By the way, the taxi cab was a white Peugeot. And if you don't know what a Peugeot is, it's a foreign cart and, and it was a, like a station wagon. <laughs> we get to there and the guy's like, where do you guys want to go? And I said, I don't know, but can I drive? And he said, for $5, you can drive. So I gave the taxi cab driver a $5 bill, and I, I started driving this uh, Peugeot taxi cab, which is three on a tree. Uh, if you don't know what that is, and that's old, it's literally a, a lever stick shift on the council uh, through Cairo. And I'm going to tell you, that was the most fun I've ever had, I think, driving a vehicle. Um, I had a bunch of drunk friends, a really scared Egyptian taxi cab driver and zero, I mean, zero, uh, traffic loss, none. I mean, there's cars coming at you in the wrong lanes, uh, going around roundabouts. I, I look back on the driving situation, how people just don't die in mass carnage from vehicle accidents in that city. It just blows my mind. I, I cannot, absolutely cannot understand how people survive, but they're just, they just make it work, which is pretty astonishing. So we we're driving, of course, we're following this Jeep of these guys that we met at the American embassy starving because we didn't eat because we were supposed to eat at the American embassy and never happened. And we stopped at this Egyptian nightclub. Um, we came up to the Egyptian nightclub and we kind of walked up with them. And I remember these guys like 
given something to the, the, the door guy to let us in. To this day, I really don't know what it is or what it was. Uh, I don't know if it was money or what it was, but uh, we get into this Egyptian uh, nightclub. And I tell you what, like I'm at this time, you know, I'm like wearing like an American Eagle shirt, like khaki board shorts. Uh, I was the most out of place person ever. You walk into like a, you know, the in the movies when you, you know, somebody that's from out of town walks into the old bar and the record screeches shut and everybody's staring at you. That's exactly what happened with us. But these, it was kind of okay because the guys we went with, I think, were kind of involved with this nightclub a little bit. Like they've been there before. So they were able to smooth it over that we were okay to be there. And then we, um, and the, the nightclub, I don't even think was open to the public. It was more kind of like, a. um, I am kind of drawing a blank right now, but back when they had prohibition, the, they'd have those little secret nightclubs. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Anyways, you're going to know what I'm talking about. And so you kind of came through this back door and they were serving alcohol in there, which, hey, you know, it's a dry country. You're not supposed to serve alcohol. Um, and so they were a lot of drinking going on. Make a long story short, we end up finding out that these two guys were like popping these mystery pills that they got from somebody at the American embassy and they were just going off the reservation, like acting super weird, getting in fights. And at about this time, we all decided we have came to an impasse with our friends from the American embassy. And so we left, which was great, but that kind of turned pretty sketchy too, because we were out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the city, not really too quite certain where we were at. Luckily, 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 uh, our taxi cab driver decided he was not going to go into the nightclub with us. He was waiting for us and he stayed. If he hadn't stayed, I don't know. I it's, it's a huge city. It's huge. And, and, uh, he knew where we're at. He's like, I kind of know where we're at. I think I can get you back to where you need to go. And he ended up getting us all the way back safely to, uh, to this hotel we were staying at. And by this time, you know, we're looking at, it's probably almost Christmas by, it probably is Christmas by now. I mean, it is surpassed at midnight. And, uh, so he, uh, what do we do? We decided we're going to go to the casino and we head down to the casino because you can drink for free. I mean, we had a shit pot of gin that was in this box uh, that we disposed of in a very unorderly manner later in the story. And um, we 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 went down to this casino and first thing we started doing, we started playing roulette. We're like, screw it. Let's play roulette. We started out with a hundred pounds. Okay. So, you know, six pounds to a dollar, you do the math on how much we started out with. And as the night went on, we got really lucky. And it was kind of like a trifecta of uh, the, my two buddies and myself and, you know, and 
betting on certain numbers and corners. And if you don't know how to play roulette, it's all by chance. You essentially put chips on numbers, on corners of numbers. And if the little ball lands on the norm number, your your money, however, what percentage of odds it is for your chips that you place, is that's how much money you get back. Google roulette, it'll show you about how to do it. So, and as the night went on, you know, we drank more and more. But however, we took a hundred uh, Egyptian pounds and we turned that in almost 15,000 Egyptian pounds. Now you're going to think about like, oh, wait a second. 15,000, it's not 15,000 American dollars. Remember, it's six pounds to every dollar, but we were still over a thousand dollars, I bet, in <laughs> Egypt, in Egyptian pounds. And by this time, we were we were pretty crushed on moonshine gin that probably was petrol for vehicles and gambling already once before and coming back and getting free drinks and it was it was horrible. So we uh, <laughs> we decided that we're gonna play one more hand. All right, and so in roulette you have red. And you have black. And uh, we we took the money. We took the money out that we started with. So we took a hundred pounds out. We're like, at least we're gonna we're gonna take cause get our money back. And by this time, I bet it's probably three in the morning. Like this casino, as long as there's people gambling, they're not closing. They they're they're not closing. So it's about three o'clock in the morning. And we take this uh, um, the hundred pounds out and we're going to go all in. We're going to take all of our money that we had. So 15,000 pounds, give or take. And we took out a hundred and we're like, we're going to go in all black. We're going to go in all black. And my buddy's like, nope, nope, nope. We're not all red. And he pushes it all over the red. And we were, we were all really good about this, right? We're like, yes, yes. We're all really good about this. And a, a buddy of mine got this great idea after these people walked in. He said, I just had a sign from above. And we're like, what are you talking about? And this group of people walked in. And for whatever reason, this guy had this black shirt on. And he's like, it's black. That's a sign from above. Obviously, remember, he has been drinking and consuming uh, vehicle alcohol vehicle petrol for the past probably 12 hours he pushes it all back on black the dealer spins the wheel last chance anybody and it all lands on red we lost everything everything we did however keep that 100 pounds and uh <laughs> we were we were so depressed and so but you know we had a really good time we ended up we left the casino and we were walking around the grounds of our hotel. Cause why? I mean, why go back to bed when you got a box full of gin and we came in contact with the large, like a, a life size chess set. And if you've never seen one of these, um, it's a chess board, probably the size of a um, tennis court. And the pieces are like life size. So, course we we challenged these <laughs> egyptian guards to uh of the hotel that we're walking around to a, a chest duel 
and they they accepted. There's only two of them and three of us, but they went and got this other guy. And um, I remember, so what, what would happen is, is like one of us would make a chess move and then they would make a chess move and then somebody else on our team would make a move. And it was kind of this big round robin cluster. But they thought it was great. We were all drunk. And I remember sitting there and... You know, this time it was like four in the morning. I mean, there's like hint um, of like sunshine could possibly be coming up at any given moment. And I remember looking up and the pyramids are all just fully just lit up. I mean, it's it's like I said, it, they're not in the middle of nowhere. It's like looking at Vegas Strip, right? And I remember looking up at the pyramids and you could see them from this courtyard of our hotel room and looking at my friends who are who are drunk, stumbling. One of them's hardly wearing any clothes <laughs> and uh, and he's moving these big chess pieces around. And I look over and this Egyptian guards yelling at him. Their AKs are all stacked up on the side. And it was it was just the the one of the funniest moments I just remember just laughing. They were super great and super cool. And uh, so by the time we ended up making it back to our hotel room and waking up the next day, it was like noon, one o'clock Christmas day. We woke up and I, I woke up and I went out on this balcony and of course there's the pyramids. You could see them. And it was, uh, I remember just kind of sitting out there and com- almost kind of completely forgetting it was Christmas because you're in a Muslim. They don't celebrate Christmas. It's not, it's not Christmas in their world. Right. And just kind of everything soaking in and they're sinking in that. Holy crap. It is Christmas day. And we're, we're here and kind of enjoying this. So that's always been a fond memory of my Christmas in Cairo. Um, like I said, I would, I would love to go back, love to go back. And, uh, the Nile river is, uh, is awful by the way. Um, so if like the Nile river that runs through Cairo, like you look at it, it's so gross. It's like dead cows are floating down. It's just disgusting, but it's a beautiful area. When I say beautiful, I mean, just the people, the architecture, the construction, the the environment is is really really cool. So yeah, that was my Christmas Eve into Christmas Day in Cairo. We woke up that next day, Christmas Day, and uh, we were able to <laughs> stumble down and got this big huge lunch. Um, and yeah, it was it was super awesome. I I think it was a it was a holiday experience that I will kind of cherish forever and always think back and smile on the the crazy guys from the American embassy that were popping pills and taking us all over Cairo to this <laughs> to buy black market gin, driving a Peugeot taxi cab, ended up in a, some crazy skank nightclub. Uh, I just it, it was just super fun. Looking back, looking back, it's probably some poor, poor choices on our part. Uh, I always do. I always do wonder how the food was at the American Embassy on Christmas Eve because that I was kind of looking forward to that. And kind of being a chubby kid, I'll, I'll always look forward to uh, um, 
some food on Christmas, but we never did. We, we drank our Christmas Eve dinner that night. And so that was, and that, um, and another thing too, that was kind of neat in its own self. I remember when we pulled up to the American embassy, you know, you're, you're traveling along and there's just nothing. It's just normal day. Everything's going on. And you pull up to the American embassy and there's this big Christmas tree. Everything was decorated in, uh, uh, Christmas lights on the fence. It, it was just gorgeous. I mean, they completely just just decorated this uh, the American embassy. And there was the American College, the American University was right across the street from it. And there was some um, decorations and stuff going there. But that was that was really the only, you know, the visual clue of it being Christmas was for that. Uh, we did have some uh, uh, like Egyptian bartenders and people at the roulette wheel and uh, wish us a, a happy Christmas, which I thought was kind of funny. And uh, so we, we always kind of got a kick out of that, telling each other happy Christmas. But so, yeah, so that was my Christmas in Cairo story. I'm, I'm sure there was some I'm missing and a lot of rambling that went on but it was uh definitely a good time i i enjoyed it and uh again it's uh, going to be a fond memory i'm going to keep with me forever um moving on about christmas and kind of keeping that christmas theme i did want to talk about a subject of eh, maybe unity um odds with people this this year has taught us one thing, and this year has taught us that we are divided as people in this country. We are uh, a people of different opinions and people of different thoughts, and sometimes our self-righteousness of wanting to be right gets in the way of creating an environment with your neighbors and people in your community and other people in the United States and around the world, um, it, it just to not end up being uh, necessarily great when it comes to camaraderie and you know living with one another. So I wanted to talk to you about this one thing that I think we can all um, learn from and kind of experience and this is the christmas truce of 1914 if you don't know what that is um it is in world war one they had a christmas truce and what happened was is that you had british and german forces each in their uh, trenches and it was christmas eve and many of the German and British troops fighting in World War One on these fronts started to sing Christmas carols to each other across the lines. And at certain points, uh, the Allied soldiers even heard brass bands joining the Germans, and they're you know and they're singing. And as this kind of grew, as you know, they were singing with each other to each other on Christmas Eve, knowing it's Christmas Eve, to polar opposite people. They're fighting each other, wanting to kill each other. Um, 
kind of created this bond on Christmas Eve. The next morning, and the you know the first light of Christmas Day, some German soldiers decided they were going to emerge from their trenches and approach the Allied lines across something which they called the no man's land, and they that was pretty ballsy on their part because you're fighting a war uh, with the other side at this point, and the the Germans were unarmed. They they started yelling Merry Christmas as best they could in English um, to the British. And at first, the the Allied soldiers kind of were fearing this was a trick. But seeing that the Germans were unarmed, they uh, climbed out of their trenches as well and met in the middle. And they shook hands. The They exchanged presents, cigarettes. Um, they gave each other plum pudding and they decided that they were going to sing with each other and they sang Christmas carols. Uh, they, they took this time also to bury the dead that were in no man's land. Um, Germans lit Christmas trees around their trenches and then they were off. Uh, and even as documented cases as soldiers from opposing sides, uh, played a good nature game of soccer. So there's there's been reports in this Christmas truce that British and German soldiers, you know, took on a game of soccer with each other on Christmas Day, laid down their arms. Uh, there was a German lieutenant by the name of Kurt Zemmisch recalled how marvelously wonderful yet how strange it was. The English officers felt the same way about it. Thus Christmas and the celebration of love managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. Um, some of the soldiers used this short-lived ceasefire for more somber tasks. Like I said, they um, retrieved bodies and uh, took care of wounded soldiers. But the, the, main, the, the main presence of it was that they, they came together as people to celebrate this time. And I, I think that... Uh, what that lieutenant, the German lieutenant said, you know, it's a celebration of love and they managed to bring mortal enemies together as friends for a time. I think it really shows how powerful this time of year can be. Um, however, uh, like, like all, you know, being in the military, there's, uh, um, it wasn't necessarily frowned upon with uh, some of the the higher ups of that military, but uh, just it's just proof that um, you know no matter how divided you are, no matter what your opinions are, where you come from, what you look like, that there is times that you can come together as people and be a person and understand where the other side is coming from. So again, look it up. It's a very cool story. Uh, it's, uh, it's called kind of called the Christmas truce about the, the soldiers that come together and meet each other in the middle of no man's land and give each other presents, sing Christmas carols and spend a day not killing each other, which, Hey, that's, that's a good day. Um, so yeah. So that is my, uh, Christmas story that I wanted to share with you. Um, I'm going to move into the beer of the week. This beer, I, I would consider a Christmas beer. It, uh, uh, I've handed a few of these out this year for uh, uh, Christmas gifts. 
I do. Um, it's it's good beer, um, but it's very very traditional beer, and and um, the the beer that I'm talking about is West Molly Trappist beer. West Molly, if uh, it's considered the Abbey of Trappist, West Molly, it's Belgium monks that brew beer and it's it's very cool on how they do it there are um certain things you have to do to become a trappist brewery and trappist is it's it's different from other beers there's a the word trappist has a legal protection and it may only be used for beers that meet uh, certain criterias. And I want to read these criterias off to you real quick. Number one, uh, to have it be a Trappist beer is the beer is brewed within the walls of a Trappist abbey, either by monks themselves or under their supervision. So that's one of them. Two, the brewery is secondary importance to the abbey and follows business culture that is keeping with the monostatic project. Um, and so what monostatic project is, is... Um, their way of life, right? So that's that's that they they follow their business practices on how they live their life. Um, the brewery does not aim to make a profit. Its revenues contribute to monks' substance and goes towards maintaining the abbey and its grounds. Part of the proceeds go to charity, social projects, and disadvantaged people. Uh, there is great uh, impeccable quality with this beer. For that reason, that they do not aim to make a product or a profit. So when you have profitable beer makers, right? They they are buying cheaper products, charging you higher prices, and there's there's this dance on how good of a beer they can make and how much they can charge, but yet still make as much money as they possibly can. And when you're a monk living in Belgium brewing beer, the last thing that you're worried about is making a project or a profit. All you want to do is pay your bills and what's ever left over you can give to uh, charity. So the quality of Trappist beers of West Molly uh, are quite frankly impeccable because quality is woven into the special culture of the brewery. The main purpose of the brewery is not to make or maximize profits. Within the Abbey walls, every step of the brewing process is subject to rigid quality checks. The brewers use only the very best ingredients, pure water, barley malt, real hot flowers, and the highest quality sugar and yeast from their own culture. The brewery also applies strict ethos of the Abbey into its health and safety and consumer information practices. The communications and advertising even must be honest, um, astute, and modest. Texts and designs are also kept with religious environment uh, in which the beers are brewed. So if you look at a picture of a West Molly Trappist bottle, uh, it's a beautiful bottle. Uh, it's a big, tall glass bottle. It has a, uh, they call it a Trappist ring, I think, on the top of the bottle. And it's very plain, very plain, very, just says West Molly Trappist. Uh, the ones that I got uh, this year were were double. Uh, so the beer of the week, essentially, that was kind of a uh, the Trappist um, uh, information on what Trappist beer is. But this beer of the week is West Molly Double, which is a Trappist beer. 
so and how it got its double is that the um in 1865, the monks of West Mali started brewing a dark Trappist beer in addition to their table beer. Um, they adjusted the, rep, uh, the recipe in 1926, doubling the amount of raw ingredients to produce a new, stronger beer. Double is logical name for it's this doubling beer, though it's more often called simply called Trappist. To this day, the 1926 recipe is the basis for West Mali Double. So essentially, they their their table beer they call it West Mali Extra. You don't drink it; only monks drink it. You can't get it; only monks can get it. But they thought that you know they were going to make a darker beer, so they they doubled all the ingredients in it, and that they they started selling to uh, push out. So I, which I thought was was you know, and kind of ingenious. You got to pay bills somehow. You have to keep your monastery up and going. So why not do this? Uh, the West Molly Double is 7%. Alcohol is a dark red-brown beer with a rich, complex taste thanks to re-fermentation in the bottle. You pick up touches of caramel, malt, and fruity esters reminiscent of ripe bananas. The beer pearls beneath the covering of dense cream colored froth a lovely lace pattern forms on the inside of the glass once emptied the long dry finish of this balanced mid trappist beer will stay with you so that is this week's beer of the week it is the west molly double trappist beer so um with that being said uh, i want to like i said we have christmas in three days i will not Put anything out um, until after Christmas. So if you celebrate Christmas, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, uh, I hope you enjoyed my Christmas story. So until next time, and like always, don't be an asshole. Thank you much. Bye.